So welcome back to Rethinking Trauma and Transition. And this week we are talking about military mindset. That means that um, what we're going to cover off is really the differences between the thinking processes, the beliefs, the values and the assumptions that, that happen within a military environment compared to a civilian environment. Do you think that's a fair, a fair assessment in terms of what we're going to talk about today, Rich? We are indeed. Yeah. yeah. So I thought we'd jump right in because this is this is um, where one of those sessions, these episodes where I get to ask you questions for a change. In terms of the of how you think people would view military mindset compared to civilian mindset, if you were able to give me a definition of what you think the differences are, what people assume we're talking about when we mention military mindset, mm -hmm. what would you think that would be? Right, well, there's the obvious stereotypes, but I'll just cover the military aspect and what that is first off. Mm -hmm. So people in military, we kind of have a common bond together because even though it might be different units and say logistics, parachutists, infantry, um, marines, sailors, you name it, we've all got sort of like a common bond of going through a quite a harsh training or hard training mm -hmm. and then extends on beyond that in cer certain circumstances. So for argument's sake, uh, you've got the... Paratroopers, the Airborne Fraternity, as they like to call themselves, or the Airborne Brotherhood. And no matter where in the world they are, and they're with the um, other Airborne people, they would always have that common bond of jumping out of aircraft, which is a silly house. Yeah, a bit daft anyway, I think. Why well, get a perfectly good airplane? So they've all got... <laughs> so why... So they, they have that common bond all across, and it doesn't matter where, as I say, it doesn't matter where in the world they are. There's that bond, and that goes across pretty much everybody in military because we have a similar understanding of not necessarily what their training was in, say, um, the states or Canada, but we have an understanding of what they do, and we can easily relate to one another. So then, civilian boys, what I've come across is that. Civilians can think we're all traumatised, we're all um, psychopaths, we're all lunatics, we're all robotic, we all um, don't think for ourselves, we have no imagination, etc, 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 yeah. There's, and the other extent, sorry, the extreme of things is we're all baby kidders, we're all murderers, we're all this, that and the other, and we all do horrible shit. But that is what some people perceive us. Do you think that's because there is a a much wider aspect in terms of the, the kind of activities that the military get involved in that sometimes while it might be in the public eye it's not necessarily always as noticed maybe mm -hmm. yeah so there isn't that many people now in forces compared to what it was years ago so that link is kind of missing because all the counties used to have their regiment of county so mine would be the Gloucesters then there would be like the Duke of York's Somerset like infantry etc etc so everybody had that common bond within the county and they would know pretty much people who would go off to join a unit mm -hmm. and that's kind of been lost now so what people don't see within 
or the spinning, as you say, looking at places like York, where they do the floods and flood prevention. They would go out and help civilian uh, emergency services, providing cover for that and help protect and build up the barriers and sandbagging for that. Then there is, uh, like a good few years ago, is helping on fireman strikes, going out, operating uh, the green goddesses. There's a foot and mouth thing going on, burning, yeah, all the funeral pyres of all the cattle and all that, because of foot and mouth. Um, and then on the extreme side of things is, like, in, I think it was in the Philippines where they had a hurricane, so the United States sent out their aircraft carriers, so they're basically floating city. They've got hospitals, they've got water purification, and all that sort of stuff to go and help out that civilian population. Whereas some people go, "Why are you sending out? Why are you sending military military equipment out to go and do that sort of stuff? We're not seeing the actual picture of what help it is providing." So, in the in relation to that, then there's a whole element of, I suppose, peacekeeping, emergency response. And disaster relief that people sometimes maybe aren't quite as aware of because yeah. the focus instead is on is on combat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so I'll give you an example. I won't name any names. There was a lady who I did a court or did a workshop with, and due to her age and everything else about her, um, her father taught her to be a pacifist because of what he'd actually done in during the Second World War. And it wasn't until she went off to do some work with the American forces that she said, oh, this is kind of what it's about. And a penny dropped for her. And she said, if I was younger, I'd have joined up and gone off and done all this. Mm -hmm. Because of that aspect that sometimes is is possibly while it's there and it's 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 visible, it's not necessarily as noticed. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of that... Um, military thinking part and parcel of that my understanding of that is is the core principles that sit behind that because mm -hmm. those are the ones that really inform the behaviors and the expectations that any member of the military has of themselves and of each other so shall we quickly run through those rich in terms yeah. of of those ones well, so i think the first one was what courage do you want to talk yeah. us through that yeah courage so they say we have two aspects of courage. The courage is what a lot of people think about is like the VC winners, um, Medal, of, Medal of Honor people, uh, military cross, dead guys and gals who've gone out, done some extraordinary battlefield, and that sort of bravery and that sort of courage. When there's actually moral courage. And the best example I can give that thing off the top of my head, I can't remember the gentleman's name. He was out in Vietnam during the Maylai massacre. He brought his helicopters down and he stopped all these all these men from killing the civilian civilian population. So he had the moral courage to stand up and say, "This is wrong." And if you do shoot on these um, villagers and these folk, my men will shoot you. Is believed they know he saved X amount, but because of the length of the operation, it's believed he saved about twenty thousand people's lives. Mm -hmm. So that's that's almost about the having the courage of the convictions and the courage of the the ethical value system that sits behind that of that sense of right and wrong. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And standing up for that. Standing up, yeah, standing up for what is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. 
So there's an element in there which also is about um, putting aside almost the, your priority for personal safety. But I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want to necessarily go into that just now because I think that's part of the conversation we're probably going to have later on. Mm -hmm. So if you're okay with that, I'm going to park that one, but I'm going to come back to yeah, it. We'll come back to that. Yeah, we're going to come back to that one because I think it's really important that we understand that part too. So the next one in terms of the principles are, are discipline. Mm -hmm. Just tell Look, me about discipline. Again, so that is personal discipline, so self-discipline, being able to get up in the morning, being on parade at the right time, keeping yourself fit, healthy, clean, tidy, keeping your kit clean and tidy, and all that kind of basic stuff, as well as then being able to be disciplined on the battlefield or disciplined on exercise or whatever you're doing by, again, looking after yourself, looking after your teammates, making sure that um, in something, again, like the Mayline massacre is going to happen because that was a lack of discipline within that unit to go off and look at massacre and all these unfortunate folk. Does that also, would it be safe to say that I, if I took a, took the word discipline and redefined it as as having standards which you all universally will uphold and stand by? In the vast majority of cases, yeah. Yeah. So what about respect for others? Respect for others, eh? There is the obvious um, banter. Mm-hmm. You know, in the old, in the old dark humour, just ripping people because why not? It's just funny. Mm -hmm. And then there's respect for others. Um, I'm sure other other people have served will back me up on this. It doesn't matter, breed, background, culture, pretty much. Everybody's gone through that system, and we're all there for one another. It's that buddy buddy system, that looking after each other, mm -hmm. and that's all that really matters. Is who's next to you in that shell scrape? Who's next to you on in that fire team? Who's going to help you out? Yeah, because I think certainly from uh, from the work that I've I've been fortunate enough to do with, with veterans, what's very clear is 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 definitely the banter, um, which uh, always makes me smile and I thoroughly enjoy. But underlying that, there's a there's a level of courtesy and a level of respect, which is very prevalent and very very obvious to see in terms of interactions and and that's that's very clear in terms of my experiences within mm. that too so what about integrity um yes well if you haven't got i suppose another word is honesty isn't it mm -hmm. if you can be honest with yourself and you can be honest with your teammates then that's putting people's lives at risk so my understanding is anthropologically Anthropologists have studied ancient tribes, and so ancient tribes had no more than roughly 120 people, and that's the same size as platoon company. That sorry, yeah, company. So what they would do is, if somebody had lied about food source they had, and the tribe was starving, and if and they were lying about that they had this food source, they would kill that person because they're a liability to the tribe because the whole tribe's end lives are at risk. So if you haven't got that integrity, that's potentially you putting all these other people's lives at risk without owning up to certain things and doing the right thing. So is that almost links back, linking back into courage and having the courage of your convictions and the courage in, in knowing what's right and, and being honest with yourself and with others? 
Okay. So the next one I wanted to talk talk to you about was loyalty, because I think this is where the conversation we're having starts to get really interesting. Mm -hmm. So give me a brief overview of loyalty, because I think this, this is where we're going to go a wee bit deeper in this one. Yeah. So we have loyalty is to your teammate, mm -hmm. your oppo, um, then the fire team, then the section, then the platoon, then the company, then the battalion. And then ultimately the loyalty is to that unit. So then where's loyalty? If we're transitioning back into civilian street and we need to go and get, our, say, like our um, transition courses done for whatever career or whatever trade skill we're looking at going into, Where's that loyalty then to yourself to go, I need time off to go and do this. I need time off to do, go and do that. Well, I suppose that's the what that's the part where I want to, I want to go a little bit deeper in that mm -hmm. one. So in terms of the military training, the military um approach and what's encouraged, where is it the priority that that loyalty sits? Well, I'll give you an example. Is as a friend of mine, and he was leaving about the same time I was. He, the nature of his job, he believed that he was not able to get away to complete all of his or complete his assessment training, what he wanted to do, and as well as go and look at housing and stuff. So when it he was like when it came to him leaving on his day, he was like, oh. I've got nowhere to live. Fortunately, the military allowed him to stay on for a bit longer and he was able to get some council housing. So he'd spent all that time being loyal to the unit, but then he hadn't had that loyalty to himself. And I know we're going to touch on this later, but it's all about boundaries and boundary setting where he, where he ought to have been going. Do you know what? This is my time now. I've done all that. Well, since you've raised that, because the next one we were going to look at was selfless commitment, but I kind of want to I want to wrap that in with loyalty, because I think there's a really strong link there that I want to kind of get to, which is, I suppose the, the key behaviours and the priority in your thinking, in terms of who you're responsible for, within that unit. So, in terms of selfless commitment, what does that translate to? Self, selfless commitment translate to on extreme end of things is giving your life to somebody else your other teammates mm -hmm. the other end of things is doing all that work not setting boundaries yourself would be say like um planning an exercise planning a range day being there until whatever time in the morning getting all that stuff ready and going what, what am i still doing here yeah, people are expecting people in people in forces to or that we have an expectation to go above and beyond of what possibly in civilian street would go. This is not acceptable. I'm not paid for this. But I can come back and do that tomorrow. From what I've certainly come across and worked with. It seems like that actually serves a very valid purpose 
in a mm -hmm. military setting. Yeah. So it has to. Because if we don't have that commitment, that selfless commitment, then you know, who we can go, well, screw you, I'm not helping you, right? So in a lot of cases, we got to have a way to go and help our oppos out. You know, they're struggling with something. You know, they just may need that hand up before we go out on a, on a tab or an exercise, and they're absolutely hanging out, and they can't get up, and they've got you. Go, give us your hand, mate. Put you up. So is that also not about, I suppose, the combat situations as well? Mm -hmm. In terms of that combat situation of when you're on tour, who are you responsible for? What's your principal responsibility? Is to the self and ultimately to whoever is around you're working with. Because I don't know if you, I've often heard people almost talk about the fact that within that loyalty and that selfless commitment, there's that belief that actually my job is to bring the person next to me home safely. Yeah. Not me them yeah because yeah. there's the reciprocation mm -hmm. and the faith oh. and the trust that their job is to bring you home yeah. exactly yeah and i can see how that is really effective and essential in mm -hmm. terms of that whole structure but i can also see how that might give quite some significant challenges when you leave the military, if that belief in that behaviour set is still there. Because in terms of personal boundaries, whose boundaries in those that belief structure are you safeguarding? Is it yours or is it the person next to you? It's someone else's. And they're safeguarding your boundaries. So when you switch from military to civilian, who safeguards your boundaries then? No one. Because we have not as such. And whose boundaries are you still safeguarding? Well, it'd be whatever career path that somebody goes down to. So they'd be going, oh, we're going to help this guy out, we're going to help that guy out. Or last. Um, and that may not be the most effective way of going back to things. So does that then translate almost to that sense of I'm responsible for everybody and for their welfare? Mm -hmm. And in a military setting, that would work well because everybody else is also responsible for you. Yeah. But what happens in a civilian setting? When you are not surrounded by people who are taking responsibility for you, crisis. I can imagine that can be quite stressful. Very much so. Yeah, the whole the whole shape of things is just gone, and you're not you're not. Where am I now? It's kind of like the old um, ship at sea without rudder. Mm -hmm. So, I tend to 
see some quite common behavior patterns when I'm working with people that that are experiencing that that transition shock almost now I'm going to use the word shock because mm -hmm. I think there is almost that um shock to the system shock to the thinking shock to yeah. the values and beliefs mm -hmm. and some of the things that that I see a lot is almost that that overstretching and overcommitting of responsibility and the over extension to the point of and I'm going to use this word very carefully because a lot of people will see see the word I'm going to use next in one context and I'm going to ask for a bit of leeway to explain it what I see is a lot of overextension to the point of self-harm mm -hmm. and when I reference self-harm I'm talking about um, detriment to the individual's own mental well-being in terms of the level of stress level of responsibility the anxiety levels that can be associated with that because their existing military mindset is telling them that they are still responsible for absolutely everybody in their vicinity Mm -hmm. but nobody is responsible for them yeah well added on top of all that kind of thing is it's the simple things that most civilians would take for granted is how do i find a dentist how do i find a doctor mm. council tax and where all these unless oh, if somebody's been married then it's a little bit different in some circumstances they're already paying the bills but pretty much all bills are taken out of wages at source so you obviously have to pay for accommodation. You used to have to pay for food. Whether I bring that back in or not, I don't know. But we don't have that kind of level of responsibility of, oh, where's the local dentist? So if you've been in the, the military for... Since 18, say. Since 18, and 20 years later you leave, for most of us at the ages of 18, 19, as we start to kind of gain a bit more independence, that's when we're learning the basics of you know, how to register at the GP, where the local dentist is, the fact that, you know, council tax is a regular occurrence in most people's lives, um, and how to do all of those those elements, because that's part and parcel of finding your first accommodation, moving out, spreading your wings, and getting a bit more independent. I can imagine if that all hits you in one fell swoop, at a much later date where you've had a very structured and very contained community, that mm -hmm. must be quite a bit of a culture shock. Yeah. Again. As, as the job change, the career change. It is, um, for a lot of people, they are, that's getting that rudderless ship at sea. What, where am I headed? What direction do I need to get into? And without the rudder, you can't go anywhere. So does that also then have an impact in terms of, because what we're talking about here is, we've touched on that, that mindset piece, which is about who looks after my boundaries. And where is where is my my sense of focus in terms of who and what I am responsible mm -hmm. for, and in 
in relation to, to, to the military, that tends to be, it's very externalised, not internalised. Civilian life is very internalised. I'm responsible for myself. In terms of community structure, that's all provided within the military, but you leave that, you transition out, and you now have the task of creating all of those elements on your own. Yeah. As well as career change, location change. So you might be moving house, changing job, all of that, as well as the things that you're now having to learn for the first time because you've mm -hmm. not needed this before, because there have been other things that you've had to do instead. And then the part that's on top of that that I wanted to touch on is, I suppose, the difference between black and white thinking and shades of grey. Yep. Because in terms of the structure within the military, and this is where, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that actually direction, action, task, how that looks like an outcome are pretty black and white. Mm -hmm. We're given a set of orders to um, say, go and take a village or whatever that objective is. So you get given the orders, you get given the plan, and it's up to the team leader to go and then work it out how they're going to do it, what what's that story like of how you're going to get there and all that kind of thing. But within that, there's all that structure of this is the times we're going out, this is um, what we're going to do before we go out, this is the kit that we're carrying, um, and expanding on that story as we go approaching more and more that time to that objective mm -hmm. so yeah that is very black and white so whether that's filling sandbags for flood defenses or going into combat situation actually the actions you take in each of those situations is very clearly defined yeah they are yeah, yeah. obviously there are some situations where you go oh we weren't expecting that so there are gray areas that do crop yeah. up there'll be variables within it yeah 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 but there is a structured plan as to how to get to that objective or how to beat that task. So even with those variables, though, I would anticipate that there's probably guidelines on how to respond to those variables. Yep. Yeah, so you've got standard operating procedures. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows what to do, what actions on when X happens or when Y happens. So how grey are those variables, really? Hmm... There may be a black swan here and there, but not really, no. So is it safe to say that even the variables tend to be fairly, they might be unexpected, or they might be rather than unexpected, they might be not yeah. what your goal or planned planned yeah. expectation is, but there is a contingency already in place for that? Yeah, they're not planned for. Uh-huh. But there is a raft of contingencies that you there is a, yeah, there's a whole yeah whole host of contingencies yeah yeah okay in terms of that shades of grey then in civilian life how clear are the objectives the outcomes the task delivery um, no are you talking about work or are you talking about in general civilian life bit of both bit of both um well. Go for work first. Go for work. Some things in that can be clearly defined, because if you don't have clearly defined structure and how to do a job, 
then it won't get done correctly. Agree? But well, there may not be, but then you, you'll have an end objective of what you want to achieve within that task or whatever that task is, that project. But how, because they do, somebody must have done something similar somewhere else, you can borrow that plan and work it out, surely. Well, there is, but I'm going to overlay an, an extra layer of complexity to that in that consideration of the grey. And that's the fact that you don't have other people round about you with a military mindset. Mm. Yeah. Because my challenge would be whether or not you having a military mindset Where do you then feel as a responsibility to drive that plan forward or to deliver that then sits? Is it more likely that that's going to feel as though that should be yours in a civilian situation because nobody else is necessarily, or you're not seeing as much structure mm -hmm. or as much um, action taking or maybe as much direction as you are possibly used to from everybody around about you? Yeah. But would that depend on how good the team actually is that you're working with in civilian street? Quite possibly, yes. Uh -huh. But I'm just wondering where that sits in terms of that selfless commitment and that loyalty piece then, mm -hmm. because that comes back to what the impact this is on terms of whose boundaries you safeguard. And if yeah. you are not safeguarding your own in those situations and nobody's safeguarding yours, but you are safeguarding everybody else's, mm -hmm. then what behaviours are then are you then at risk of having? Yeah. Um getting burnt out, getting bored out, overextending yourself in some way, maybe encroaching on somebody else's work. Turning up far too early work to carry on doing that job and then staying too late at night to do that job. So that comes back to that concept of risk of placing yourself at risk of self-harm mm -hmm. because actually you don't have the same approach to your own boundaries as everybody else does. Yeah. In terms of that military mindset then, we've touched on kind of the bond and the importance, I suppose, mm -hmm. of that shift in boundary ownership, which within the military is critical and is probably fairly central in terms of making sure everybody comes home safely. Yep. But actually, it doesn't really translate very well to civilian life then. There's a significant risk if that belief system is still what's prevalent in the individual in a civilian lifestyle. Do you think part and parcel of that, though, is also about that 
sense of self and sense of value in terms of self because my understanding of what I would I'm seeing when if you're looking after somebody's somebody else's mm -hmm. boundaries rather than your own there's almost like an implication that they are more important than I am yeah Which then comes down to that almost that risk of an understanding of the value of self, which is a key part of our personal identity. Mm -hmm. Because the other element that probably I wanted to touch on with you is that sense of purpose. Which is something that a lot of folks that do lead the forces lose. They have we um something common I noticed is that for argument's sake, everybody was going, right, oh, what's the what should we do this year? We'll, we'll all go into data comms and fiber optics. Mm -hmm. Our next one would be maritime security or close protection. And then it will be cyber security. Then it'll be kind of like following the herd one after the other. Because if somebody else is doing it, that must be a good thing for me to do. And go realise after maybe 18 months or so, well, this is really crap, isn't it? This is not what I want to be doing. So they've not set their own boundaries or really thought the process out of what do I want to do next? It's probably more a case of what don't I want to be doing? I don't want to be in the military anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not a case of what do I really want to do? But that might take five, eight, ten years after you leave, after somebody leaves, to actually find out what they really want to do. Because the whole process of going, re-identifying as to whom you want to become, resetting those boundaries, re-looking at, um, I suppose, breaking that mould, Mm -hmm. and restructuring the life that you want to live. Well, I suppose if I look at look at myself, when I haven't got military experience, actually, I'm on my third career path. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily that unusual these days. But that means that I've practised that all the way through my adult years. This isn't the first time that I'll have gone through that, that I've had a chance to kind of be a bit of a clear butterfly to move from from purpose to purpose to try mm -hmm. different purposes and goals on and see what fits because it strikes me that actually a big part of that sense of self is is that sense of purpose particularly given i suppose the structure of the military i would suggest that probably that sense of purpose that the military gives people probably actually attracts a certain type of individual to that as well Possibly, so, yeah. and therefore that becomes almost part of our inner picture of ourselves our inner portrait you know when we look internally and say this is who i am that purpose is part of that picture. Mm -hmm. In some ways, but to a greater, lesser extent, is people can choose pathways in, within the forces. 
-hmm. but we're still in that structure. So somebody might go from argument's sake, like a friend of mine used to be in the artillery, then he went into the PT Corps. But within that job, he's had several different career paths, but still within the military. Well, you know how we were talking earlier on about the, the extent of the military networks, the fact that part and parcel of the strength is the of the military bond is both the servant, the strength of the serving community and also the strength of the veteran community. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you then, in terms of that veteran community, I get a strong sense that for most military veterans, if I was to ask them to picture themselves internally, they would in some part still be wearing part of their uniform. Yeah. Um, definitely. So I think, I know with myself and at least one other person, is so whether it's a common thing or not, I don't know. But when we left, we never wanted to have anything to do with the military. We wanted that part side of us killed off. But because we've been in there so long or we've done all this, that and the other, it's such a part of us, you can't get rid of that part of your identity. It's, it'll always be there. It's, and I suppose that comes back to that inner portrait that we carry of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a classic example could be if I take it away from that military-civilian debate and just talk about, for instance, things like um, sometimes the struggle that smokers have in giving up smoking is the fact that part of their internal portrait, they will be somewhere holding that cigarette, that pipe, that cigar. And actually part and parcel of that change is taking that part of that picture and removing or altering it so that that mm -hmm. cigarette, that pipe, that cigar is no longer part of their internal portrait. So if you're still having that portrait, part and parcel of that transition is actually almost altering that portrait to give you a new sense of self, to yeah. give you that understanding of actually what is my purpose going forward, mm. because purpose has been really important in the first place. Yeah, where's that internal conflict of who am I next and what do I do with this aspect of me and where do I bring this new aspect of me in? And is this also about how I how I define value? Yeah. Then how do I reevaluate myself? That seems like there's a huge amount in terms of that transition piece. It is. And I don't know whether they can or what they're going to do. It's possibly because then I know there's a lot of guys and gals now who are even in a few years, they're already going to the um, careers shows and careers fairs because they're already going, what do I do afterwards? Mm -hmm. Who am I next? What, what are my options? Whereas it was when I was serving this case, oh, you're going to stay in and that's it. You'll be that for life. There's no other option. But I suppose in terms of that transition piece, my understanding is that there is time given for retraining, there's funding there. There is, yeah. But my question would be whether or not there's enough done about that identity piece. As far as I can recall, whether they've changed it or not, it's been almost 10 years now. There's none. 
So is that where almost there's a question to everybody listening then to say actually what's your views in terms of mm -hmm. the importance of that identity piece and whether you are about to leave the military and transition it or whether you transitioned it a while ago, actually what was the impact instead in terms of that identity of your sense of identity and what were the challenges that that, that, that led to? How did you maybe meet those challenges, address those and overcome them? Mm -hmm. And what would have been helpful for you in that transition? Yeah, uh, what would have been helpful is support. It is um, not getting, I won't go into details, but not getting fucked off by a charity and feeling like, what was that all about? So there, that's a sense of betrayal, a sense of loss within that itself. Going, yeah, basically, there's there's a card. Ring me if you when you're desperate, and um, I'll get back to you. Is that maybe because there's an awful lot of different providers, but maybe the network, while while it's is very well, the network is very well provided. It's not necessarily as joined up or as. No, I won't go into details, Ali. Maybe as it need as it could be in terms of how all of those services then link together. No, it was just one particular bloke, okay. and right. and I won't go into details because no. no. So if we then move that on to we've talked about kind of I suppose that sense of identity, that sense of purpose. We've talked about the boundaries piece mm -hmm. in terms of that being very different from the civilian understanding of boundaries. Because again, I suppose my query would be whether or not MD has experienced actually the impact of how they've gone about re re reshaping those boundaries because I certainly know from the work that you and I do Rich that a huge amount of the conversations we're having with veterans revolves around boundaries mm -hmm. revolves around encouraging them and helping them almost put them in place for the first time so that these are personal boundaries not boundaries that they're safeguarding for others but they're safeguarding for yeah. self and before we kind of close it and bring the, the conversation from today to a close I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you think would be worth adding to that conversation we've had today yeah Maybe if I summarize the well, question, question is if you're going to look after yourself, who's going to look after you? And I think that's an important one to ask, and it's part, I suppose, it's central to that change and that shift, mm -hmm. isn't it? And that transition yeah. is that understanding of actually. That's almost kind of the, the the central pivotal change that you need to make. Mm -hmm. 
which is putting yourself first, safeguarding self first before yeah. you safeguard anybody else. So in terms of today then, that means we've covered quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We've had a look at, I suppose, the central principles. Yep. In terms of, of how the military community goes about building that that defined and really powerful set of behaviours which keeps people safe, that keeps people effective and efficient, that helps ensure that what needs to happen does happen. But we've also looked at what how those are really quite fundamentally different in terms of um ownership of responsibility between and whether that sits whether that sits as your responsibilities for self or for others. Yeah, we've also covered is um generalized perceptions of how potential civilians can see veterans and wider military community as well. Yeah. And obviously the principles or the values and standards of the army and how they apply to people in the military. And there's obviously a crossover with people in who are civilians anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's been a good chat, Ali. Mm -hmm. So on that note then, I think that's us. We're going to close the, the session and the, the, the episode for this week. But again, the invite is always open. If anybody's got any comments or anything that they think they would like to engage in the conversation yeah. with or maybe have us do a bit of a deeper dive on, because certainly, you know, I, we, we probably share a mutual fascination with that personal boundaries piece yeah. and the importance of it in terms of people's experiences and mental well-being. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So you can find us on YouTube, about rethinking trauma and transition you can find us on amazon music and spotify anchor and maybe a couple of other podcasts yeah. and please if you can leave us reviews as well yeah, you can facebook as well we have our facebook page and we're also on linkedin we are under rethinking trauma and transition yes yeah. we look forward to hearing from you take care and good night good night <laughs>